0: We must sound the drums of war. Come out and fight. It is a good game to die. I can't break off the you for You snuck up on me just like a real city of you. Hey, so you're the Indian boy. I was raised the true Indian way. This is Break Assets of the Indigenous Pirate Radio.
1: <gasps> nope, I got nothing.
0: You got nothing? Why
1: uh, Why don't I have nothing? Why do I have nothing?
0: Because you're honoring Whitney Houston right now. Oh, that too. But we're also Hi, honoring nothing. Wesley B. Roach. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Wesley <laughs> B. Roach. A uh, big moment in his family. I'm not going to put his business out there, but it's a big moment in the family, and it's really, really cool. Um, this is Breakdance Wolves Indigenous Fire Radio. My name is Jossie Ross, Natanako Nugumsaka. I come from the Blackfeet people, those tall, uh, uh, handsome, handsome um, and, and modest people from the Northern Plains, directly south of the Canadian border, what's now known as Canadian border, directly east of what's now known as Glacier National Park, one of the most beautiful places in the whole entire world. I'm sitting here with some of my favorite people in the world, favorite people in the world. Please introduce yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I like? am Richard and I am the co-host of Ray Jensen Will's Indigenous Pirate Radio. I'm a Southeasterner, though suspiciously incredibly short native people and um but yet nonetheless good looking um so i you know pretty much and i have grandmothers and grandfathers from other um places as well which include west africa and through the west indies and through um the deep south but also from ireland and
2: scotland so
1: um we have a guest guest hi
2: everybody Uh patrice colors here i'm so grateful to be. With y'all, we've been trying to do this for a minute. Long time. Like literally years. And I'm so glad we're doing it now. Um, Co-founder of Black Lives Matter, uh, born and raised here in Los Angeles, California. And just a lot of deep, deep gratitude um, to be in conversation with both
0: of you. Thank you so much. I know that this is an incredibly, incredibly um, busy time for you. I know it's an incredible time of uh of uh destroy and rebuild, um, which, you know, that's the cycle of life, right? Um, that's something that um has been shown over and over, you know, whether we're talking about slash and burn forests, um, you know, we slash them down. That was actually a, a native practice. There was a chief named Oshkosh from the Menominee people. And, you know, he said, this is how you do it, and there's a real cool story that goes behind it and um they and and people for lots of years scoffed at that notion. Oh no, this is this is, you know, old primitive native practices. You're not supposed to be doing that. And then at some point people realize, oh, you know what? This works. This works. If we start where the sun rises and and cut down those portions of forest and move westward toward where the sun sets and we do that and we give proper time for rebuilding, proper time for repairing, proper time for revitalization, um, it's sustainable. And it's something that is, it, it just makes so much sense. And and I see that time happening right now. And it's scary. Um, it's scary because, you know, we know the evil that we know and we're comfortable with the evil that we know. And we've been comfortable for, with it for a very long time. And then um, and then we get confronted with these new storytellers, um, Patrice, um, other people who are telling a story that is something different than just accepting the evil that we know it's It's a completely different story it's a completely different paradigm and those new stories are oftentimes you know terrifying. Um, I'm sure that the first time somebody talked about, you know, domesticating large mammals, that was terrifying to some people. Oh, my gosh, that's that's a beast. That's a mythic creature. And then people realized, no, we can actually, you know, work together with these large creatures. We can actually domesticate them. We can actually have a relationship with them. And now for our people, the Blackfeet people, the um, Scott people, people, we're some of the greatest horsemen in the world. Greatest horsemen and women. And and that came as a result of a relationship and telling new stories. And so I, I say all that, you know, just but with gratitude. Thank you so much for forcing us to listen to a new story. Thank you so much for telling, being brave enough to tell a new story. Um, and and I would like to, you know, open it up just, you know, before we get into the questions and answers. Um, let's tell a little bit about your story and and, you know, what this larger narrative Is happening right now and how we're living in this, um, you know, apocalyptic slash Afrofuturism slash Indigenous Futurism time that has been way overdue.
2: Oh, I love that. Um, And I love kind of just starting with the grounding of the earth and how we relate to the earth. And I think we, we forget, human beings often forget that we are nature. We're not separate from it. And um, it's our duty, really, to help align the planet, um, both in its relationship to other human beings, but also our, our human beings' relationship to the earth. So, you know, for me, um, I, I grew up here in, in Los Angeles, LA's big, you know, 10 million people, the county, Um, I mostly grew up in a neighborhood called Van Nuys, um, families from like Poima, Lake Buterra, so the San Fernando Valley, and spent a lot of my life witnessing over-policing, over-incarceration, a significant amount of violence um, inside the neighborhood, inside the community, and very little support, very little care, very little resources. And I think that you know that really shaped me that shaped how i um understood uh what we deserved um I think what was critical for me though is that i was I, I was labeled quote gifted at a young age and was shipped off mostly white schools and uh and white communities and 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 that really did see a completely different world you know uh, like the other side of the train track is so so real and I would show up to school and there would be no police um there would be you know there there was no punishment uh there was uh no no real chaos uh it was a lot of support um a lot of infrastructure and then I would walk or take the bus home and sort of like witness that like division. Um, the minute I entered into my neighborhood. In fact, I remember bringing a, a friend home with me once, and him saying, "Grudgingly, I didn't, I didn't know you lived like this." And so that those early experiences shaped how who I would become, and and the work I wanted to do. I, I wanted to change the system. I knew that I didn't know that language, but I knew it in my spirit. I knew it in my body. That, you know, why it's not fair. It's not fair that. The, the this other community for 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 no real reason, you know, um, was receiving all of these resources and my community wasn't. I wasn't the kind of kid that was like, I want to get out the hood. I never had that mentality. I was always like, I want to I wanna fix what's happening in my neighborhood. I want to fix it. I want to stay in the hood. I loved my neighborhood. I love the people in my neighborhood. We just didn't have shit. And so I wanted to change those conditions. And that obviously would shape me and uh, would make me end up being a full-time community organizer and activist and now, you know, movement leader.
0: (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for that um, synopsis Um, and movement leader slash, you know, narrative changer. And, you know, I find that narrative is a word that's way overused nowadays because, you know, people, it's, it's, like they make it small, right? Narrative. We're talking big, we're talking story arcs, and this is a time where um, story arcs are profoundly changing. They're changing, and it's requiring masterful storytellers. And when I see, you know, up here in Seattle, they've been they've been turning up, and um, I see these young folks, and I realize. You know, they're not getting credit for the geniuses they are. They're masterful storytellers. <laughs> these, these, you know, I like for me personally, I'm, I, I want to hand this over to Minty because I actually envision this conversation as being a conversation between y'all for the most part. I have a couple questions, but, you know, um, Minty is the is the, the, the structure, the backbone of our show. And, um, you know, I really want to do that. But I just, you know, I, I, I just want to make an admission. Because when I see you and one of the reasons why the first time I met you, Patrice, I gave you a big hug and I just said thank you, if you recall. Um, and, and the reason why is because, like, uh, you see me, I, I got my shirt on right now. I got court tomorrow and stuff like that. And I'm a lawyer. And, and for so long, I played according to the white people's rules that I thought that a certain there was a specific protocol. If you wanted to make change, like you go to school, you learn to speak like them. You learn to write like them. You, you know, if you do all that stuff, you become an honorary white person. And pretty soon, you know, around the age of 50, 55, they start to take you seriously. And, and, and then maybe you can make some small incremental change. And y'all just completely change that shit around. <laughs> like, you know, and it was, and and I didn't take it. I don't get defensive about stuff like that. I think it's beautiful. You know, I, I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, that's. That's dope storytelling because I was actually living somebody else's story. You know, I I was doing what somebody else said. This is the script. And when I see, again, to the, the young folks that are turning up, when I see you, when I see anybody that's involved in just serious, serious seismic, violent change. And when I say violent, I'm not talking about tactics. I'm talking about it's like it's jarring. Because we're so used to these tiny, tiny symbolic, like Derek Bell was talking about these things that really don't have any value, and, and that's what I was participating in. And I don't mind admitting that that's not, that's not me being you know self-deprecating, that's just true. And I see y'all, and the storytelling is so, so beautiful and it's so deep, and it shakes us at a seismic level, down to the very, very core, the magma of, of who we are. And and that's just beautiful. And that's the reason why when I saw you, I just had to say thanks because man, the storytelling is incredible. Uh, Minty, I'm sorry. I rambled a little bit too long. I'm going to butt out for a while. So um, my my big sister, one of the loves of my life, who's just an amazing person, been an inspiration and a mentor to me, Patrice. I I invite you to talk to Minty for a little while. Yay. Well, you know,
1: I think I, as a, as a woman, as a BIPOC woman, I got to just know, how are you, like, how are you doing? How is your
2: art? Well, thank you for that. Um, Every day is different. Um, I think, you know, this time around, I feel much more grounded. Um, You don't know what you don't know. So, you know, seven years ago, when we started BLM, I didn't realize what that was going to do uh, what, it, how it was going to change my life and, and the world. And so this time around, I was like, oh, okay. I kind of know how this works. I uh, got to know what I need in place. Um, I know that it's going to be intense for several months, you know, and then I know that, um, cameras are going to leave and we're going to have to keep it up. Um, so this time around, I feel like I have way more infrastructure for my own, uh, for my for my body and my spirit and my mind and my presence. Um, I also have a kid this time around. Um, I was pregnant um, during the first first iteration of, of BLM. And uh, I think having a four-year-old has really grounded me um, in a way that's really different. Like I have to um, be, my discernment is this like on point, you know, where I'm like, okay, yes, this works. Okay, no, I can't do that. Like, this is what I can give. This is how much of myself I can give um so every day is different though today I'm a little tired but I feel like very grateful there's like a there's like a a well of gratitude often
1: yeah yeah how how has your back then and now how has your perception of a support network looked
2: how does it change what does it look like that's different now I, I think you know I think back then, even the people around me didn't really know what to do. You know, I think people were like, we've read this type of stuff in books, but like, what does it actually mean to be supportive? Um, You know, I I lost a lot of my my friendships. I've regained them, but there was just a lot of, you know, people felt resentful. People felt um, hurt or upset uh, because they didn't fully get like, in some ways I was being, a uh, soldier for the movement and I kind of had to do my duty. And um, I didn't, I meant that I couldn't be in the kinds of relationships that I was in before. So this time around, I feel like I also have um, like, we've all grown so much. I have, I have a really tight knit community. And so when everything popped off this time, like they got in formation in a real way, they're like, all right, here's your, here's your care team. Here's your, you know, your security team um and my my crew really um organically gotten formation and learned from the past um so I have a tremendous amount of support um and ways that I didn't have before um i was I felt very isolated when we first started b l m and while like the world was thanking us and you know we were being interviewed and people were you know you know giving us a lot of like accolades that it was very lonely. Um, it was a very lonely experience. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, traveling alone and being in a hotels alone and very little sort of relationship building. Um, and I'm someone who really, uh, I need relationships. Like they're really important to me. Friendships, and, And community. And so this time around, I feel, I feel so different. Like, I feel like I have kept that at the core of, of my work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I um, lived here and in Pomona and Fontana um, as a kid growing up in Fontana and Pomona, um, specifically the Pomona San Dimas area. And when I moved from here, I had a really strong urban native community. And I moved down there and it was like culture shock, right? There was nobody that was Native. And if they were Native, they were not like Native like us up here. It was just a totally different experience. And what I found really quickly was that I didn't have permission to be both. And then having the added mixture of white, I also was transracially adopted. So then there was this added layer of like, and you have that, right? And then my sister is Korean and you have that. So there were all these like intersections that didn't always intersect the way that I hoped they would. And now we're in this revolution, right? And you're a year, I think you're a year younger than my daughter. Maybe you're the same age as my daughter. And you are literally like in rap lyrics. You are literally like going to be that that ancestor people are like yo no I descend from her and and I know like most people you didn't sit out and go you know I think I will be a game changer entirely I I think that's how I'll live but you've done that and you're standing with other people who've done that and I'm so curious now that you are exposed to people that weren't part of you know Pacoima, weren't part of Van Nuys weren't part of Indian communities as as Indigenous people that actually have visibility and community, you now have this larger community that that considers you family and claims you and loves you. How do you see what is happening in Indian country and the movements that need to happen there and Black Lives Matter, how do you see them intersecting and how do you see
2: them not intersecting? yeah i've been thinking about this i think about this question a lot you know there's uh Jyossi and i talk about this a lot um but you know so many so many black americans there's you know a, a deep and i, I don't want to call it myth cuz i don't want to offend anybody but there's a deep sort of like legacy of us saying that we got indian in our family you know um but what i think that actually means is that there's like a deep desire um and also a deep understanding that there is a intrinsic solidarity that exists in our communities that we don't often tap into. Um, And I know that, you know, when we were invited Black Lives Matter Standing Rock, that was one of the first times, I think, in our movement where we were having a different kind of conversation about indigeneity um, and a different kind of conversation about Turtle Island. And like, what relationship we had and what was our relationships going to be like. And I think that, you know, my desire and my, um, I think, challenge to us as, as it's two communities that have been devastated by um, colonization is that there's more room to actually engage in how we show up or don't show up for each other. And as someone who lives here in Los Angeles, who spent a lot of time in uh, Latinx communities and have had a lot of conversations around black and brown relationships in particular, there is this kind of rigor that is needed in order to step into the ring of conversations with a, a different community than yours that has been pressed by the same government. And I think that conversation takes courage. I think it takes a kind of vulnerability. Um, I think it takes um, the willingness to make mistakes and to possibly hurt each other. And I think it takes a road coming back to one another. And so, you know, with that said, um, I think there's more that needs to be done. when it comes to Black folks and Native folks. I think there's not just the kind of dialogue that, that needs to happen between our communities, but there are so many connections that could be made um, around police terror and police brutality, um, around mental health in our communities, um, but also, you know, and maybe more importantly, our resilience, um, the resilience that comes out of our communities that we just don't tap into, um, and I think it has a lot to do with prop, the proximity. I think it has a lot to do with, you know, um, the ways in which the the U.S. you know has this white supremacy has a has a, has a kind of fetishization with all of our different communities in different ways. And so there is a, a way in which Black communities are sort of hyper-visibilized, um in all the in all the wrong ways and all the quote, quote right ways that really confuse I think um, even our community around what 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 does solidarity look like with other communities. So I, I feel like um, I'm interested uh, in going beyond conversations, although conversations are necessary and and really recognizing like, where's, I'm an organizer. So I'm always thinking about like, what's the, what's the, what's the narrative shift that needs to happen? Um, But also what is the, for lack of a better word, like legislative shift or um, systemic shift that needs to happen, that actually brings our communities together. Like I'm, I'm deeply interested in that. And I'll, I'll close with this I, I, I when I first started organizing I was in a multiracial organization and um, it was kind of our job as a multiracial organization to study each of the uh, each of the, the main groups that we were really fighting for and to figure out how we were in relationship to one another and what did that solidarity look like and you know in Los Angeles is a big Korean community. I think it's the largest co- Korean community outside of Korea. And so we were attempting to have a multiracial movement with a Korean uh, Korean community that has a history of a lot of racism for Black people in particular. And, and so we would do these cultural exchanges um, around Black folks learning about Korean folks and Korean folks learning about Black folks. And not in sort of like that um, Sesame Street kind of way, although I love Sesame Street, but like real deep engagement about our people's struggles and histories and how we got to the place we got to and the very hard conversations about anti-Black racism or anti-Asian sentiment. And that's the way I learned how to be in community. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if we're going to be on land that was stolen, how how are we going to be with the community that the land was stolen from? And that, to me, it feels very critical. It's something that I think we just haven't gotten there yet. Um, and this iteration of our movement, you know, because there's, there's a long history of um, deep relationships between Black and Natives, but I think this iteration of the movement, there's been moments, but there hasn't been a sustained movement. Um, yeah,
0: so I had a couple of specific questions, Therese. Um Because, the, you know, I think I've actually been very proud um, I, I, I'm somebody that, you know, and, and our show and just generally we have three native people who al- also have, um, African ancestry, you know, um, on our show, Randy, Randy Tippin's first writer. He's not here. Um, but you know, he, he does as well. And both, you know, all of us are, are very, um, hopefully, uh, we are immersed in all of it, you know, um, don't don't do do the binary thing as far as as far as race or if there is race. Right. Um, But. And so we speak a lot in very first person terms about. Some of the ways that historically anti-blackness within Native communities has affected us and affected other people and not in a way that's glossy or uh, perfunctory or conclusory, but like, no, this is real life. This is actually how it's shown up. So with that caveat, I've been very proud of the way Native people have been respectful of this most recent incarnation of both um, the Black Lives Matter movement and just generally, because I don't think they're synonymous. I you can correct me if I'm wrong, but also just generally, the the um, struggle for Black Lives. I think those are sometimes two separate things, right? Um, there's people who strive in other ways outside of Black Lives Matter as a as an organization or as a movement, and say, well, this is my way. Um, and I've been proud of the way Native people have, like, in my estimation held held off trying to put those concerns at the forefront because sometimes it actually gets to this competitive thing and it's really ugly, it's really self-defeating and it's, um, it's, it's, it's not good. So I wanna be the voice box for all those people who have been very, very respectful and who have seen the bigger picture and said, you know what? Black people have 100% created this momentum for this most recent round of racial progress, i want and 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 so I think that there's a lot of people right now who you know I, I'm representing a family in a case uh it's called um the guy's name was uh, Stonechild Chiefstick, and he's actually somebody I've known for a long time. I know his family. I was texting with his his um his family earlier today. Uh, not about this conversation. Just because that's what I do. My 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 kids play with their kids, and they've been extremely respectful. Like we don't want to conflate or ride the coattails of Black Lives Matter, of of you know um, uh, the 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 many 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 black folks who have been killed, harmed, incarcerated by by law enforcement, and and you know like that's something that. We have to respect. But I also like, I see it in their eyes and I hear it in their voice. Like, they're, they want to say things like this. And I'm going to give you a couple of things like, is it okay? Is it appropriation? Is it um, manipulative to say things like Native you Is it appropriation to, um, to to or or something else, I don't know the separation between appropriation and you know uh influence and stuff like that but but is it is it any of those things? Is it bad essentially to to um to put forth the very real fact patterns that contribute to our oppression and oftentimes death and oftentimes dismemberment and injury and incarceration at the hands of law enforcement? Are we stepping on people's feet who created this movement? I don't want to do that, but I also want to advocate for my family or for my friends or for my community. And so I wanted to confront that question because, you know, I, I, I want them to feel, to, to, to hear, I suppose, like how, what your thoughts are on that. Of you know if if they're being um unintentionally uh offensive or manipulative or or, or something, um, and and so I, I wanted to ask you about that, Patrice.
2: Yeah, I love that question. I mean, you know, I think part of this work, and as someone who really looked to the work of the Panther Party or the Brown Berets, you know and really saw that work the the work of fighting for for folks nations you know the nationhood as they called it um in the 60s and 70s i do think there's a power in saying like i stand in solidarity with you know this movement and i recognize how colonial colonialism white supremacy anti-Black racism impacts my community too, even if our community isn't Black. You know, um, the case here in Compton, um, and that Andres Guardado, who was killed by the sheriff, he was he was running, you know, running from the sheriff, seeing a security guard, he was at work when he was killed. And the family, you know, the family has obviously, you know, took to the streets, and one of the first things they, they did was really thank Black Lives Matter for being able to create an opening so the issue of police terror is an actual issue that, that people are looking at, you know? There would be no national news of Andres if there wasn't a BLM. And so I think it's not about, you know, waiting or being quiet while BLM or Black people sort of, like, Fight this fight, I think is this, this is the opportunity, and we, we saw it in the sixties and seventies with multiple groups, you know multiple nations standing up and saying this is how this is how the white man impacts my family, this is how the white man impacts my family, and some of that is overlapping some of that there some of that is very specific to our communities, and I think it's the this this is a moment where we get to opportunities for all of us to rise up collectively and name that and say yeah like sure uh black people may have started this iteration or created a space for this but we're not creating the space just for black people um yeah. we're creating the space for 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 folks who are under attack by this government to have a fuller conversation around what that attack looks like um and not to be like we all need to unite you know, and do it together the same way. That's not possible. That doesn't make sense. You know, I don't, I'm not impacted by the U.S.-Mexico borders personally. I'm not impacted by, you know, um, a detention center personally, but I know that I have to fight alongside the folks who are impacted by um, uh, racist and xenophobic immigration. So that to me is like where I think that's where that dialogue and that like those kinds of conversations around what we're fighting for and how we're fighting for it and what what are those specificities, uh, what do they look like, what do they feel like, um, and how do we show up for each other? I want to make sure that the people in our movement are are able to talk about. Black people around the globe. I don't want to just be talking about Black people in the United States. I want to talk about Black people around the world and how anti-Black racism impacts all of us on the global front. Um, I don't think it does us um, any service to be um, navel-gazing. And and when we say Black Lives Matter, you know, it's an, ex- it's an expansive term it's not a limiting term, it's a term that's deeply expansive and that is like getting straight to the gut of white supremacy. Um and I and I hope that communities feel it as a call to action for them too, um, to see how, how that how anti black racism I believe anti black racism impacts all of us, um, differently, uh, but it impacts all of us. You
0: know, um I, I thank you very much for that. Um that that's incredibly empowering and um and powerful just as a you know, as a statement. I, I actually take it like I, I'm I'm actually glad when I see people being cautious. Just just for my you know and, and the reason why is because there's such a horrible history of everybody, not just white people, profiting off black labor, right? And and so I, I actually see it when I see native people doing that and being cautious and being respectful, I'm like, all right, this is cool. <laughs> and now we can get to the other side of exactly. the analysis, which is what you brought up, the conversation, the dialogue. Yeah. Well let's ask some questions. So thank you very much for that. For sure.
1: And it feels sort of um like there's a shift generationally. I'm I'm um Jossie and I talk about what I like about breakdance is that we we span three to four mm. generations four. and so a lot of the perspective um, is broadened. And I remember when um, BLM first became like trending, right? And I was, you know, I'm I'm gonna be fifty two, and I was like, "Shut up, Josie!" <laughs> and you know, Jossie mentioned where I kind of I knew I had to catch up immediately. Mm-hmm. And I've been working anti-racism for you know twenty five years. And you never, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. But with anti-racism work, everybody realizes immediately this will never stop being a constant learning, right? Mm-hmm. And when you have to catch up quickly on something this revolutionary, it's it's also very difficult. If it were easy for us to grasp the concepts, we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And so I remember being in a room, hearing people kind of go, well, Native's lives matter too. All lives matter, blah, blah, blah. And I remember having to really kind of unpack a lot of white supremacy notions that I had uh, internalized um, as to why I was like trying to understand how to center Blackness when I had constantly been raised in an environment to not center Blackness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How much... Um, discomfort it caused to own how easily that had been a conditioning right and so i now look at folks that i love and respect that are still grappling with that concept years later right their their catch up is taking a little while how do you recommend when 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 people are trying to figure out how to bind their liberation how do we even get to that point? Where where is the starting point for those conversations? And and, and because you'll hear the things like, "How do you get forty acres and a mule and mm-hmm. stolen land in the same conversation?"
0: Oof.
2: Tell the whole truth. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, to be quite honest with you, because um, it's really in some ways, I feel like that's the question of the future. Um, like we haven't gotten to that place yet where we can have that conversation in a way that is generative. But I think it's, such, it's the question we should be asking. Um, I think a lot about, I don't know if y'all are following this because it's here in LA, but there's um, Manhattan Beach, which is a beach community. And it used to be, there used to be several lots owned by a black family. It was called Bruce's Beach. And essentially, white supremacists in um, and, and multiple ways. Uh, There's two, you know, KKK incidences where they ran out Black people, but then ultimately the white city council um, called that land um, uh, eminent domain and then stole it from the Bruce family. And so in this George Floyd moment, there has been this re- claiming of that beach and i've been thinking a lot about it. i haven't actually talked about it publicly but thinking a lot about like the um indigenous community that land was stolen from and like what that conversation looks like and in some ways i feel like we cuz we we focus so much on uh whiteness and like how we can how we reclaim our everything from white you know the white people who stole it from us that we don't often get to just like sit with each other and be like, okay, what would it look like to get this land back? And who, how, how do we negotiate with one another? Um, and when I say we, I, I mean black and native people. And, and so it feels like a future conversation um, that, or a future question that, that we should actually be a- asking now. Um, it's the, the way that BLM was like of the future when it came to us, you know, it was a very, um provocative term. It was a very scary term. It was a very fulfilling term. Never in my wildest dreams that I think I, that did I think I would turn on Netflix and see Black Lives Matter on the screen or Amazon or YouTube commercials. You know, like I never thought the corporatization of Black Lives Matter would happen. But that's when you know you go on to the next term, which is defund the police for us, right? Which they're hella scared of. Um, but all that to say is the field, those future questions or those future conversations we should be posing them now, and I think you know as we I remember in the in my sort of like you know when I first started doing movement work and I was sitting in the rooms that were 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 discussing reparations, there was always a you know one or two. Black elders in a space that would be like, if we're going to talk about about reparations, we have to also talk about, uh, we have to talk about Black people's relationship to Native folks. But it never, the the conversation never sort of expanded past that. Um, But I think those are, you know, those are the kinds of conversations that I feel like if we just were in more, if we were in proximity to each other more often, that we would be we'd have more answers to those questions. Like to me, you know, one of the first things um, the, the Bruce's family or even the people who are advocating for Bruce's beach uh, as they're trying to get the land back is like, okay, how do we, how do we track down the team of folks whose land this is? Like, do they still live in Manhattan beach? Have they been completely kicked out? I know for, for Bruce's family, that was 95 years ago and his he was, they were, you know, kicked out of the, they were. The land was stolen from them. They were kicked out of it. And then they were like, they went and were, you know, cooks for the next several years for a white community and never received compensation. And now like you, I was just over there the other day because we're going to be doing an event over there. And one of, I called like, there's a like, real estate, like two story, like a townhouse. And I called and asked how much the townhouse was. And uh, for one of the townhouses, it was like $5 million. So like knowing that the land that we were on, you know, was stolen from them and then like rebuilt some, some of it is parkland and some of it is like, you know, real estate. And it's probably like worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, overseeing the ocean, like. And like, what do you do with that? What do you what do you do with that information? And and who's responsible? Like, who's responsible for making sure that the family gets it? Who's responsible for the conversations around, you know, native folks? I think that it's such an interesting and important, um, like it's just it's an interesting tension that I'm I, that I'm I'm curious about us leaning into as we further the conversations about land and reparations and and, and reclaiming. I think it's really interesting because
1: I think people who are very familiar with living in Southern California that didn't know this story are probably shocked ah. listening to this because when I was a teenager, you know, everybody ditched if you lived in the Inland Empire, that's what you did. <laughs> Which beaches to go to, and you knew which beaches you were not going to. Mm-hmm. None of us were going to hang out at Seal Beach mm-hmm. Manhattan Beach, right? You, you know, you can you knew you could go to San. <laughs> you were not going. You weren't deviating and going to Manhattan, but but the white boys that I went to high school with at San Dimas, they were going to Manhattan. Beach. Absolutely, you know, they were living their best. Mm-hmm. So. I think people need to also understand, like this is like if you're in New York trying to have the conversation about Manhattan Island, <sighs> Manhattan Beach and Manhattan Island are pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. Really, I think it's really an interesting conversation, but I also think it it then opens the door for what has happened in so many towns in California, in the you know, to Black and Brown and Indigenous people. <laughs> We got to open up, you know, Truckee and Tulare and all these other places that really have some um, horrible stories around them. And, and we do need to start talking about that if people are going to want change, what are you willing to give up? Because none of this is going to happen without us all having to give up a significant amount of what we think we should have access to or rights to. That's right. That's right. Jossie, I know you had a question that you wanted to ask ask Patrice. I mean, thank you so much
0: for your time. And Minty, thank you for your time too. Minty, Minty actually, um, COVID has been, um, it was rough on her the first several months. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I haven't physically seen her in a long time and Minty means a lot to me. So it's good every opportunity I get to see you. It's nice to see your <laughs> smile. Minty. Um, um, so I, I, let me, before I get to the question from Converge, and Converge Media is a, um, uh, it's a, it's a brother named Omari up here. And he's a really, really good dude. Um, and he has, uh, really pushed the, um, truth as far as trying to give an alternative perspective to all the really, really demonizing images of, um, the, the, the protesters. Here in Seattle, you know, then people would say, well, this is them doing some horrible, horrible thing, you know, killing cats and, and smashing dogs and, and pushing old ladies down when they're walking crossing the street. And Amari would come with the images. No, this is actually what happened. Let me give you a little context. And he's been doing that very, very prolifically. And it's incredibly important work because we're talking about storytellers and his story, his storytelling ability. His, his genius and his, um, the brilliance that he's provided has been correcting the record, correcting the record, giving a much bigger record than what we're getting through mainstream media. Um, his question, and so I, I say all that to say I I trust his questions. And, and it's important to me that, um, you know, that, that he asked these questions when we're given the opportunity to talk to a masterful storyteller such as you, Patrice. And, um, his question was that, Um, it seems as though BLM is everywhere. Um, And it says, was the organization able to verify these groups that claim their BLM in communities um, or are they affiliated with the organization? And is it similar to the national national process for BLM? Um, Is it, is it one big umbrella? Is it, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, people with, you know their own agency to to utilize the name and 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 uh, mission as they see fit. Is their centrality, centralization of mission that sort of thought, Patrice? Sure. Um. There is. You know, people have to remember that the
2: organization, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, is shares the shares the same name as the movement, which is Black Lives Matter. And um, when we developed the chapter-based network, never did I imagine that people would pretend to be chapters or just use the name without getting permission or start their own organization with the name of Black Lives Matter. Um, We didn't trademark it. um, And that's both um, a blessing and a curse. You know, Black Lives Matter is public domain. Um, It is not owned by anyone, even though we coined the term. And uh, I think it's good on the one hand. um, Our job was not to own the movement. Um, I think where it gets tricky is when you get people like, you know, the brother in Santa Clarita who started the Black Lives Matter Foundation and raised $2 million because corporations were so, you know, desperate to give money that they weren't verifying who was who and this dude's talking about having coffee with the cops you know um and then you know or like individuals who are um deciding to start black lives matter organizations in their own neighborhoods even though we've said hey can you talk to the leadership first of of black lives matter i think a lot of this has a lot to do with sexism and us being three black women and sort of the kind of disrespect that we've, uh, the kind of disrespect that we've experienced, um, I don't think would have happened if it was three black men. I know it wouldn't have happened. Um, the, the, uh, the, the idea that um, there are people in this moment of Black Lives Matter who had no idea who we were, um, uh, you know, in our movement, people know who we are, but we weren't mainstream um, until this moment. And that, um, that would have never happened if Black men started Black Lives Matter. You know, I met some people this time around who apologized to me. Black men, you know, in the hip hop community that were like, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't really believe that Black women started Black Lives Matter. Either they thought that we were, pup- there was, there was like a, you know, puppet behind us or it was Black men who started it. Um, so, I think there's so much, there's so much, to, there has everything to do with um, so many different isms um, and barriers for people to just be like, oh, let me respect where respect is due. Um, and then also, we made it really clear that this was a decentralized movement. Um, never did we um, say that there was a single leader. We said this was a leader for movement. And I think that has both been amazing for people. And it's also confused people. Um, so that doesn't give you like a direct answer to that question, but all that to say is that there are lots of people who call themselves Black Lives Matter that are not affiliated with the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation with the actual organization. Uh, tons of people who call themselves Black Lives Matter activists that are, um, centering themselves versus, um, uh, you know, Black people in the movement. Um, and then there's people who, you know, kind of like jumped on the Black Lives Matter black bandwagon and was like, I'm going to use this term because I know it will give me more clout in certain spaces. Uh, some people use it and they're not a public global network, but they're still amazing organizers. So it's like, it, it, it can be confusing. And and I thought we were special. We're not because the Panthers, if you talk to the Panthers, they say they experience the same thing. You know, there'd be Panther panther chapters and places and they were like those are not the panthers like that's not us but we grew exponentially more than we realize and and more than we could sustain and that's beautiful and also creates its challenges
0: just just as a follow up um it, it, it creates challenges you use the word challenges and i think that's very specific word um but well, like the the in, when you say Santa yeah. Clarita, did you say? Um, do you seek recourse against um, people or organizations that are doing things that are outside the mission of Black Lives Matter? We have in the past. Uh, we
2: have done a lot of that work. It's pretty exhausting. There was someone who was going around uh like in 2016, 2015, 2016, saying he was a president and CEO of Black Lives Matter, getting on CNN and everything. Um, and we definitely shut that down. Um, but in this in the most recent phase, like we haven't had to do as much of that because um, you know, the, the co-founders have become a kind of popular that we can say, hey, that's not us and people get it. Um but yeah, we definitely have. We have historically, you know, checked people and and, and also had conversations. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't.
1: So, I, you know, obviously we could sit here for another three hours and, and talk. Um, I guess I'm curious, within the next, I don't know, until November the 4th, give us three pieces of advice for people, regardless, BIPOC or otherwise, three pieces of advice for how we need to be showing up with some intentionality until November the
2: 4th. Sure. Uh, Number one, um, everybody should be paying attention to what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service. Um, And so uh, that can, that looks like, like spreading the news that it's under attack and it's being underfunded and that he, that this government is trying to rig an election. Um, so I think lots of people. I don't. I don't think um, many of us knew how important the U.S. Postal Service was. Um, and so I think it's a, an incredibly important uh, campaign to to work on um, with that buy stamps. Um, I don't know if people know, but the U.S. Postal Service does not receive any tax dollars, even though it's a governmental agency. It's like run as a business. And so it needs money right now. So we should buy stamps. Um, I think uh, now is the time to have the kinds of courageous conversations that we had um, on this podcast. Um, Now's the time to Talk about anti-black racism and how it impacts you, your family, your community, um, and really show up and and, and that in that rigor. Um, and number three, like enjoy yourself. Um, I really feel like, uh, especially as as activists and organizers, sometimes we could take ourselves too seriously, and so I think this is an opportunity to like find the way that, especially in COVID nineteen, like the isolation can just get to you, like. Find something that you love and that you enjoy and 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 lean into that and lean into joy right now.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. If you ever want to come on again, please do whenever you want. And um we'll talk about all the fascinating things in the world. <laughs> Just Ross, I wanna thank you for checking in and taking care of me the last five and a half months of this craziness that I'm experiencing and everybody else is experiencing, but since I'm centering myself in this moment, uh <laughs> thank you for checking on me. Feel free to send some fish here my way. I'm out of smoke fish. <laughs>
0: I got you. Um, yeah. thank you so much, Patrice. Thank, thank you, Mint. I I love both of you. I'm not using it in the sense that uh people, you know, I I I, I try to Hollywood love. I love I, you. <laughs> I, I truly love both of you I admire both of you, I, you know, I'm so proud to be affiliated in any way with, with both of you thank you for everything you do
2: thanks y'all, big hug this is so
1: special, thank you team thank you for Patrice, have a good one y'all it is a
0: good day it's a good day to be in Came, we Thank are we are. you for making me a new one. Can't break off spirit. Thank you for having me to come to war. You stuck up all these like a real.